Good evening. Welcome to our uh, question and answer night. We do this once a month at Coastline. And uh, I'm Pastor Michael. This is Greg Morrill, one of our elders, and Stephen Smiley, one of our pastors, and Eric Curtis, one of our elders as well. And so um, usually each month we've got a, a spot where you can send your questions in from the Bible. We don't answer questions not from the Bible. Or if you ask us questions we don't know that aren't covered in the Bible, we'll say we don't know. But you can send those in and we'll try to address them. Uh, Pastor Chris has decided that we would go kind of through some of the things that you might call distinctives of uh, Calvary Chapel. And if you don't know, Coastline's associated with those uh, churches called Calvary Chapel. So this is the book, uh, probably, I don't know if you can see it on the deal, but it's called Calvary Chapel Distinctives. And um, it's available on our bookshelf. Uh, we just sell them at cost, so you can grab one if you're interested. But we're going to go through some of those topics. And I would just like to emphasize at the outset something that's really important to me is that for the most part, these are secondary issues in the Christian faith. And what I mean by that is that um, there are certain doctrines or viewpoints or things the Bible teaches that are really not up for debate as Christians. So, for example, um, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead and is coming back and that he is the only one that can provide salvation. It's his grace, it's our faith in him that provides us salvation. There's no other way. That's not a doctrine that's up for debate among Christians. Someone holding a different view about salvation, and if they thought they could work their way to God, would be outside the bounds of, of Christianity. They'd be a non-Christian, really, whether, whatever they might think. But there are a lot of ideas within Scripture that have different, we might say, valid understandings or interpretations. And so um, oftentimes in the family of God, the places where folks have uh, differences in their fellowship will revolve around those things and how they function as a church. So these distinctives are kind of that way for Calvary. So I, I say all that to say, one thing I always want to be careful for myself is we can get really prideful sometimes about things that we believe are true that are different from someone else but aren't like essential doctrines. So for example, the way a church is a government, etc. We do it because we believe that's, that's our understanding of the scripture, but it doesn't make us superior or better than someone else. So as we go through these things for the next few uh, sessions, I think it's just important to keep that in mind that we not be like, man, we're, we found the secret sauce and we're the greatest ever. No, we're just people trying to understand God's word and follow Christ. And there are others who uh, see these things differently and they may be mistaken. We'll find out when we get to, to be with the Lord. So um, I'm going to pray real quick. And then uh, I'll, I'll go first with the first one, and then we'll just kind of go back and forth. And if you have uh, questions about what we're, what we're dealing with tonight, I uh, believe we've got somebody up in the booth that can uh, forward those questions up to us. Um, and if you're here in the massive audience this evening and you would like to ask questions, we would love it if you'd raise your hand and say, hey, I was thinking a question about that uh, thing you just said, Michael or Greg or Eric or Stephen, and we'll do our best to do that. But let's Let's ask the Lord by his spirit to guide us into all truth before we start. So, Jesus, the Bible says, apart from you, we can do nothing. And we acknowledge that you are our Savior, that you are the Lord, the head of the church. And we're just um, members of it. Well, it just seems too small. It's an honor that you would call us your sons and daughters, that we could be your hands and feet and have a function. And, and you said you'd send your Holy Spirit and he would guide us into all truth. So we pray for that tonight as we look at your word, as we discuss these things May it be that your spirit is teaching each of us. And Lord, you know the needs of our own lives tonight and in the days ahead. And perhaps you would use the things from your word tonight that we hear to help us to be grounded in our own faith, to be looking for your return, to be knowing how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. So we pray direct our conversation, the questions and all that we say in, to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so my uh, first topic is um, what is called the... What's that? You have a question? Dylan already has a question. What's your question, Dylan? You got one? Yeah. What do you got? Right. Is it from our topics tonight? Or Okay, go ahead. Fire away. Let's see if we got it. Give it to God? That's a good question. So let me see if I can restate it, both so people can hear online, and you can tell me if I'm understanding what you're question is. So there's some phraseology you might have heard, like we call it sometimes Christianese. There's language that we use in the church, you know? And if you're a new person to church, like what are those guys even talking about when they say these things? And one of the phrases we sometimes use is to say, hey, we want to give it to God. And the it there can refer to a problem or a situation that someone's struggling with. Is that the right way to say it, Dylan? Okay. And so your question is like, well, what does that actually mean? It sounds like a nice phrase, but what's actually happening in the heart or mind of a Christian? It does sound good. Yeah, Dylan's pointing out if you need a t-shirt or coffee cup, that this would be a great phrase to put on it, give it to God. So does anybody want to jump in on this? I mean, the first word that comes to my mind on this is it's a matter of surrender. That's the word? Okay. Stephen, Stephen goes first. So here you go, Stephen. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> no, Greg's, Greg's ready. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking about, uh, first of all, surrender. And I think that's one of the, the, the keys about our church and, and Calvary Chapels is, is we're we're doing the very best we can to to live our lives in humility, surrendered to the Lord, and allow Him to be the Lord of our lives. So the question is, how do you practically do that? And um, and, and I was just thinking of an example in my life where I this was about ten years ago. I literally thought I was going to lose my business. I thought I was going to be bankrupt. And in my kind of business, that doesn't mean just losing the business. It likely would mean losing my home and everything that I had worked for personally. And, uh, and so I found myself, you know, like, like really down about it, you know, turning on the TV when I get home and staring through the TV at the, at the wall and just like going through all these things in my head. And, and the key for me was grabbing a bunch of you guys, you know, grabbing the elders and saying, hey, please pray for me. I mean, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, but I, I think it was really just recognizing I was completely powerless over it. Obviously, God had something for me to do, but I needed to give it to God. I needed to completely surrender. And, um, and uh, these guys, you know, laid hands on me, prayed for me, and... Uh, and nothing changed in my situation. Absolutely nothing changed, except it felt, uh, it felt like a thousand tons was lifted off of my back, and I could just breathe. I was like, "All right, Lord, whatever you got for me, you know, if if that means I'm, uh, you know, living in a trailer, and uh, going back to commercial fishing, or 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 whatever it is, you know, um, but it." it for me, mentally, it was a point of, of complete surrender, uh, and then and then out of that grew this just great gratitude. Mm -hmm. It's like, Lord, you blessed me with all of these other things, rather than focusing on the problem, because the problem's still there. I'm going to go to work tomorrow, and it's still going to be there, and I'm going to come home, and even though I left work, the problem's still going to be there. But, but Lord, you blessed me with a wonderful wife who puts up with me. You've blessed me with three daughters. You, you know, all of these things are great. I've got a, an awesome church that I'm a part of. And, oh, yeah, I'm not going to hell. 
So, anyway. I was going to, I love that. That's such a great example that nothing changed and you experienced the peace of God which surpasses understanding. I was going to add for me, the way that I kind of test this for my, and you can tell me if this checks out for you guys, is uh, if, do, have I surrendered control? That's really what it is. So usually for me, I'm in a situation and I want a certain outcome and it might even be the right outcome or a good outcome. You know, it's not the question, like sometimes there's a moral thing. Like I can think of something right now I've been praying about super burdened and I want this outcome and I think it's what God wants. But as long as I insist on that happening, I'm trying to figure out a way to make that happen or intervene in the situation to make that happen. Or even like, this is subtle, like twist God's arm in prayer to get that to happen. I don't know if this resonates for anybody else. Usually that robs me of peace. It's at the point when I get to where I say, um, so this, I was actually thinking Jesus is a good example, right? So he says, um, He's praying in the garden before he goes to the cross. It says, Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. And that sounds to me like a guy who is surrendering control and surrendering the situation to God and saying, if this is what you want me to go through, I'll do it. And then uh, what you see play, play out in Jesus' life through the next uh, trials and the, the beatings and stuff is a kind of peace. They're all, everybody's surprised. Like, why doesn't he answer when he's being uh, attacked. And so you see in Jesus' life this sort of a, with the outcome of surrender and control in that moment. So that's, for me, that's what it means when I say I'm, I need to give this to God is I need to surrender. And I've got to say, Lord, whatever you allow, I'm just going to trust you with that and go with it. And at that moment, when I actually take my hands off of it, I experience peace, even if nothing changes immediately. One other thing is, it, it, because sometimes it's not a bad situation. Sometimes it's something where it's, Direct, directly related to sin, and and it's, I think it's also once again the word would be surrender, but surrendering our will to God's will, and um, and and allowing His word to be the authority in our lives, even if we don't like it. Um, it one of the biggest mistakes I've seen so many Christians make is is trying to explain away what God's word is pretty clear on and making excuses so they don't have to change. And, and so, once again, it's that, that, uh, that deal of surrender. I think that's a great question because that's super practical for how we all, every single one of us that's trying to follow Jesus is trying to figure out how to do that. And for me too, I'll just add that I have to do that over and over. There are certain things I surrender and I'm like, I'm good. I just prayed with my friends. And then, you know, I exactly, I get back in bed that night and I turn it right back to, okay, but what about this? And, you know, and so that I have to like lay it down again, you know? So if you find that as the pattern, welcome to the club. Yeah, Castor cares on him because he cares for you. And that word is like roll. It's like taking the weight of something and passing it on to the shoulders of our Lord who carried our cross. So, okay, great question. Thank you, Dylan. Anybody else got something? Please raise your hand. All right, my first topic is the priority of the word. So this is probably one of the things I think in the, in the day in which we are in, when people go to Calvary chapels, they expect is that there's gonna be a really long sermon. That's probably something people expect. We, in the Calvary movement, kind of give a priority to the word of God. And and uh, Chuck Smith in the book writes about this. You can read some of his other stuff of how he came to be convinced that it was important to go verse by verse through the Bible. And there's a few different uh, texts that we can turn to that speak about this. Acts chapter 20, verse 27 is Paul kind of saying to the elders in Ephesus, um, hey, this is what my ministry looked like when I was with you, kind of goes over that. And one of the things that he lays out there, he says, I have not... Uh, failed or shunned to declare to you all the counsel of God. 
the whole counsel of God. And so you think, oh, that means Paul took time to explain to them as much as he had time to do from probably God's word, right? He's giving them the whole counsel of God. So as a, as a movement, as churches, we're like, yeah, we want to make sure that we go through the whole Bible with people as much as we can. And if you've ever been to other churches and then you've come to Coastline, I remember when I was coming here in the early days and our pastor goes, we're going to go through the book of Leviticus. And I was like, we're going to do that verse by verse on a Sunday. Like we're doing that. And it was amazing for me as a kid who grew up in the church, had never done that on Sundays to see how rich the scripture was. And we took time to go through it and find those applications. Uh, So we've seen that to be very valuable. I think it's um, it's what the scripture declares about itself. Second Timothy three sixteen says that all scripture, emphasize there on all, is inspired by God, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the Bible says that the, all of the scripture is useful, including the genealogies, you know, things that are tough for me, and that they're useful for helping us be equipped for what God wants to do. So how can we help each other be equipped for that? I mean, we got to give each other the whole counsel of God. It can almost be weird too when you're first around people that really start buying into this because people start sharing scriptures with each other all the time. You'll get like a text, you're like, what's going on with these guys? Or when they're praying, they're like, Lord, you said in your word. So there's a whole kind of culture that comes with this. And I think it's really good. The Bible says that in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them. Peter writes, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in regard to salvation. And Paul writes to Timothy, until I come, a young pastor, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So I've got some more verses on that. And I talk about the method. Why do we do it the way we do it? And uh, Eric may have more to add on this. Uh, He just, I think, was doing Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah chapter eight, there's this really cool account of, let me read it. I got your hand, Dylan. And uh, this is how they did it. And so we don't do it just because it's this way in Nehemiah, but it's such a good example, I think. So give me one sec to flip over there. In Nehemiah chapter eight, it's a kind of revival passage. The people of God are coming back together. I'm just gonna read some verses from chapter eight, verses one through eight, I'm gonna pull out certain verses. So in chapter eight, verse one, it says, all the people assembled with a unified purpose or one purpose at the square just inside the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe, scribes were guys who were skilled in the word of God and copyists, and uh, but studied the word of God. That's kind of what their life was devoted to, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. So the book of the law was the word of God at that time, uh, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. And then it goes through and talks about their assembly. Verse five, Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. And when they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet or all the people stood up. And then in verse eight, they read from the book of the law of God, and clearly explained the meaning of what was read, helping the people to understand. So here you have a people assembling for the purpose of hearing God's word. It's kind of what we do on Sunday. There's a dude on a platform. I mean, we kind of have a platform so you can, not so you're above the people, just so everybody can see. And there's respect shown for God's word, right? And then what's their method? They say that they read it. So they're reading the actual text, right? And then someone's clearly explaining what it means. So if you come on a Sunday, there'll be someone that reads a verse that says, hey, this is what that verse means. Here's how we can understand it. And then helping the people understand each passage, you're kind of applying it to life. So that's the method that we take. We go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we kind of the saying around here is simply teach the word of God simply. We're not the smartest guys. We're just trying to read what it says, explain what it says, and then apply it to our lives. So that's kind of our, our method for doing it. Um, let's see if there's one more thing. Yeah. Dylan, your question. Go ahead. Yeah. The qu- 
make sure I got this question right. So the question is like, hey, if you're not really familiar with God's word, like what are the risks if you're not reading it in context, taking it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, just grabbing a verse here or there, yeah? So, okay, if that's right. So the, the danger can be you can miss out on what the rest of the verses actually mean. So I was actually listening to somebody recently who was talking about how you could pull verses just apart and like make them sound totally opposite from what they say. So like if you just said, hey, wasn't it Jesus who said, cast the first stone? Is that true? Did he say that? Yes, he did. But that's not all that he said. He said, let he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. So if you don't like pull all the pieces around it, sometimes you'll end up with even the opposite meaning of what the text actually says. There's a lot more we could say about it. But yeah, context uh, helps it all make sense. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's really important for every Christian to believe. And it's one of the points in this book here. You know, it talks about the centrality of Jesus Christ. But it, it is really important for every Christian, young or old, to, to understand that the entire Bible points to and speaks of Jesus in one way or another. You know, the Old Testament law was fulfilled by, by Jesus. You know, um, uh, it, there's just so many things throughout the Word where it, it's a picture of Jesus, and then Jesus was on earth, and so he lived out his life on earth, and then went to the cross, which was the ultimate fulfillment of all of that. And, and if you get that basic framework in place, then, it's, uh, then, then you want to learn how things are said in context and how they might be pointing to Jesus. Does it make sense? Super good. Yeah, that's super good, finding Jesus in the Word and looking for how those things all point to him. Uh, two more points on this, um, and then I'm, then I'm, gonna done, I'm done with my section. So um, one more part about how we read the Bible, how, what's our approach. So there's a, basically the, the way you interpret the Bible. There's different viewpoints on this. It's the field sometimes called hermeneutics. That's the $50 word for Bible interpretation. And um, the way we read the Bible is what we would call the, the normal, literal way. So if the, the, the simple phrase I've liked is, if the first sense of the passage that you're reading makes sense, then don't seek another sense. And that may sound kind of silly, but the reason it matters is sometimes you have folks who read the Bible and are like, well, this verse makes me feel this way, so it must mean this, or this verse means this to me. Well, the Bible can have a lot of applications, but the verses mean something. God said a specific thing and meant it in the way that he said it. So our task by using context, like Dylan pointed out, and looking for Christ is to find out what does that verse actually mean at the time that it was written to the people it was written to, and then how can I take that and apply it to my life? And that application might vary a little bit, but the meaning of the verse doesn't. So that's, that's a really important thing that actually will come up in my second topic as well. When you get away from that, when you become the one who gets to read your, uh, your idea into the Bible, then the Bible kind of becomes like a Ouija board rather than a message from God to you to be understood. That's how strange doctrines come out of that, by taking something completely out of context and building something on it that's just simply not what the Bible says and leading many astray, being deceived and then going on deceiving others knowingly or unknowingly because of the way you felt when you read it or... <laughs> uh, well, Dylan's, Dylan would know. He sat with me at some Bible studies where that stuff happens, like, you know, in the jail. It just happens, you know, because there's so much, we'd call it, uh, the term would be jailhouse doctrine, you know, jailhouse religion, just jailhouse craziness, because so many people have so many voices, 
little pieces, half of a verse or a, a word of a verse. And uh, I would call the whole, to get back to your question of cherry picking, I call it, it's like a, a Bible roulette or a version of Russian roulette because you can spin it and then pull it and you might get a good one you might get, or you might get one in the chamber. If you get that one in the chamber, it's going to blow your brains out. And if you get the wrong verse in the scripture and it says something crazy because it's out of context, that can really ruin somebody and take them greatly off course and hurt them terribly. So. And you don't have to go to jail to find that out. You know, all you have to do is open up Facebook. I mean, pe- people love to th- be experts on the Word of God and, and, and cherry-pick verses and throw them out and fight each other about them, and, and it's completely out of context. Uh, last thing I just want to point out was uh, two verses that say, um, first was in Amos, uh, chapter 8, verse 11, and this is a, a prophecy um, that the Lord says, Behold, days are coming when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread, or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. That one of the, the, the signs of the judgment at that time was that there'd be, there'd be a hunger for people and an inability to find uh, the, the true word of God. And uh, in 2 Timothy 4, there's a, a, another example of this that's forward-looking for us, a prophecy of what's to come. Paul writes to Timothy, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting, listen to this, wanting to have their ears tickled. Now that sounds weird because... No one ever is like, please tickle my ears, right? But what they mean by that is you want to hear things that you want to hear. You want people to say nice things to you. You want to hear someone validate your viewpoint on stuff. And he's saying, so people will, a time is coming when they won't endure what God has said, but they'll want to have people just say what they want. They will accumulate, here's what it says, for themselves teachers according to their own desire. And in our day, I think we see that starting to happen where people are moving away from the clear teaching of what God said, just reading it, saying, well, that's what it says. And they're trying to, like Greg said earlier, explain it away or just find someone out there who, you know, has a lot of degrees or sounds smart that will try to tell them what they want to hear about their life. And that's, that's wrong, not just because it's, it's incorrect, but it hurts people, right? If you're someone who's believing something that's untrue and someone tells you, oh, no, you're good, you know, you're going to be just fine doing that, it could, it could kill them. You know, like if, if you imagine you had a, a, a meth addict or something and you said, man, I don't want to offend him. I'm just going to tell him, it's great that you're using meth. You just go hard. You're going to be fine. You could end up endorsing someone doing something that could kill themselves, hurt, their, hurt themselves, like Stephen said, uh, by getting an idea wrong. So we think that it's important. The way we avoid that is by continuing to feed people God's word and to do it in this uh, regular way, taking it at face value. Last thing I'll say, and then I'm done for sure, is uh, Jesus, we are just talking about this, some of the guys, um, compares the, the work of ministry to sowing God's word. He says it's like a seed. You cast it out. There's all kinds of responses to God's word. But the thing that I was thinking about for this tonight and that I think about in church and Chuck writes about is that that is a slow process. If you've ever planted anything in the garden, there's no, you know, in our instant society, you don't just walk outside, throw a seed in the ground and come back the next day and there's corn. Like there's a whole lot of work. There's preparing the ground. There's watching out for bugs that would eat that and weeds. And, and you've got to be patient to wait for the fruit from that seed to grow. And so in a church or in your own life or in our life as a church, when we're putting out the word of God, sometimes the process is a slow one. You're sowing the word into someone's life. It's taking a while for the results to show up. And so I would just say to each of us that if you're coming and you're sitting under it, sometimes kind of like, oh, I don't really know. This is okay. I mean, it's great, but you know, I don't really see any results. Like be patient, wait, the word of God is like a seed. It will bear fruit 
uh, but it takes time, and that's God's work to make that uh, come to pass. He says in Isaiah 55 that, so shall my word be which goes forth from my, it will not return void without accomplishing what I sent it forth for, that his word will always accomplish his purpose. So we give a high place to God's word at church. I guess I'm going next. I'm waiting to hear Eric talk. <laughs> All right. So um, the, the first one that I have is, is uh, the concept of grace. Uh, in, in the Calvary Distinctives book, it, it says grace upon grace. And I think that is, that is one thing that, first of all, was just life-changing for me at this church. Michael as well. Um, you know, I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor, um, and, and a good one at that. This is no knock on my dad. But I was not in a church that emphasized the teaching of grace. And what I, so what do I mean by grace? Grace is God's unearned favor upon us. That if, if we have a correct understanding of the Bible, I know that I am a worm. I deserve nothing better than hellfire. That's the reality. Because God is so incredibly perfect and holy. I can never measure up to his standard. So with that, I want to look at a verse or uh, several verses here. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. This, is, this passage is like a life passage for me. It says, And you were dead in, the tr in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, of, of disobedience, among whom all we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, I love that, those two words, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a, a mouthful to read that. But as you read it over and over and break it down, you know, the first part is easy. Okay, we understand our sinful condition. Even if we haven't really heard it from the pulpit, we haven't read it in the Bible, we all innately understand well, something's wrong with me. Um, but then those two words, but God, 
and it and it says because of his love for us he sent jesus to the cross to pay for our sins once and for all what was it say he uh he made us when we were dead in our trans, uh, trespasses he made us alive together with christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Some of this, positionally, we are there. We have not experienced this yet. But that is God's outpouring of grace on our lives. So what does that mean? It means a lot. That right there should affect absolutely everything that we do. It should affect how we interact with each other. You know, for example, I had uh, I had a really good friend that uh, had decided it was time for him to divorce his wife, and I was not in favor of it at all, because he was, like I mentioned earlier, he was trying to explain away all kinds of scriptures so he could justify what he wanted to do. But he kept he kept pointing to his wife and saying, "Well, she doesn't do this." And she doesn't submit, and she doesn't do that. And I, I told him, as lovingly and gently as I could, basically, who are you to hold that against her? Because you, as the husband, are called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Look what Christ did for us. When you were absolutely dead in your sins, he paid the price once and for all for your sins. And he raised you up, seated you at the right hand of God with him. So who are you to hold a sin against another? In, um, uh, I, I forgot the reference now, but Jesus talks about the, the parable of the wicked servant who, who is forgiven this great, 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 great debt and then goes and finds a servant lower than him that owed him just a, a, a few bucks and just basically beat the snot out of him, you know, just and goes and has him thrown in jail because he owed a debt, and, uh, and the master came back and said, what have you done? I have canceled all of your debt, and you're holding this against another, you know, uh, and I'm just butchering that whole story. But the, the whole point is because of the grace that's been poured out in our own lives, from God the Father, through his son Jesus Christ, it should absolutely revolutionize our interpersonal relationships. The other thing is it should absolutely free you. We're not trying to earn God's favor. You can't. He's never going to love you any more then he loves you right now. He loves you so perfectly and completely. And that was demonstrated on the, on the cross. So quit trying to measure up, to earn his favor. But that does, that does not mean, we, we've been going through the book of Romans on, on, on Sundays. And, uh, and Romans is so great because, you know, in, in chapter 6 it says, what shall we say then? Should I continue in sin that grace might abound? You know, I'll sin more so we can see more of God's grace. Absolutely not. It says, God forbid. Do you not know that you are dead to sin? Because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, 
Not only has he wiped away all of your sin, paid the price for all of your sin, past, present, and future, but he's broken the chains of sin that force you to sin. Before Jesus Christ was in your life, you knew, you knew nothing else. We are, we are all born as sinners. But because of Jesus Christ, that cycle has been broken. So, so the, the, the dilemma is how do we live our lives in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, even though he's already pleased with us, but really, I guess, I guess it would be, to, how do we live our lives in a way that gives honor to the work of the cross? That's a very good question, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I uh, run an equipment shop, and I have people coming in, in and out. You know, sometimes no one in a day. Sometimes I'll have 10 people through there in a day, but I try to, some of my vendors and salesmen and stuff like that, I'll witness to sometimes. And like, oh, do you go to church somewhere? Where are you from? You know, do you go to church there? Oh, you, you know, you should consider, you know, going to a church or believe in Jesus. Or I'll pray for people, share the gospel with people. Um, not every time, but sometimes when I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. And what I've noticed is a common thread. You guys have probably noticed this. A common thread is, um, well, yeah, I, I just, I really believe that, you know, just, I just try to be the best person I can be and be nice to everyone around me. And I'm just a good person. I just really believe in that, you know, and I believe God will honor that. And I'm like, okay, well, actually, I'm glad you like to be a good person, but the Bible says that none of us are good, that we're all sinners. And that even if we do some good things, like, it's canceled out by our sin, like we're going to hell, you know, so um, it's this idea, I think that what Greg is talking about is, as humans, we have this propensity to be like, well, I got to do good, I want to do good things, and and even when we're sitting in church and listening to a sermon or reading the Bible, it's really easy to come up with a principle or a practice to follow or some sort of application from a uh, uh, teaching from God's word is, you know, this is what God's word says, therefore, you should be doing this. Okay, this is what God's word says, therefore, I need to forgive people. So then I walk out the doors of the church going, okay, I'm going to forgive everybody. Anybody that wrongs me today, I'm going to forgive them. You know, and we try to crank out these good practices and good principles, and it just doesn't work out because we are incapable of doing these things in and of our own strength. Somebody told me a long time ago, whenever you're teaching the Bible, you should never end your teaching on a principle or a practice, but you should end the teaching on the person of Jesus Christ. And that's actually, I've found it pretty challenging because as a Bible teacher, it's very, very tempting. And it's pretty easy to end a Bible study on, well, do, do good do better, you know? It's just that simple. The Bible says it, you know? But at the end of the day, we are just not able to do that. And that is why I think the doctrine of grace is so important and why it's, it's uh, central, why it's so important to be a central part of how we do church and everything with our relationship with the Lord is because 
there's really nothing without grace. Like we need the grace and the power of Jesus Christ even to follow his word. So I guess like just to sum that, that whole principle, practice, it just, we've all tried it, right? We've all tried to do good. It doesn't, it doesn't work, but it's the person of Jesus Christ and the grace from Jesus Christ is how we can move forward and grow in our walk with Christ. So that's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's well said. So um, the, the, the other question that comes up a lot of times, you know, like Romans 6 talks about, you know, should I continue in sin that grace may abound? If, if, that's, if that's our question, you know, hey, well, or, hey, I'm covered by grace, so I can, I can let this one thing slide. It's really not that bad. It's, it's all covered. Um, that's just proof that we don't even begin to grasp the depth of what Jesus did for us. But, you know, uh, one thing I've heard in around our church, other Calvary churches, is like, how come you always are talking about the cross? Because we are going to spend an eternity trying to understand why God would save us. And so the deeper we go in trying to understand our salvation, the more we want to just please God. The more we want to just live a life of gratitude for what he's done. That, and that's why I say it's absolutely life-changing. Do I get it right? No. I, I mess up all the time, and, and you know, sometimes I lose sight of what's important and the, the fact that, that Jesus is my everything. I am a dead man apart from him, and the life I live is his life in me. So my life, our, our lives should be lives of gratitude. And as we're seeking to just be grateful to the Lord, we find that all those fleshly things start falling off of us. As we fix our gaze on him, we see nothing else that would draw us away. We see only him and how amazing and wonderful and beautiful he is. And, uh, and that's why grace is such a theme in, in Calvary Chapel churches and should be the theme in every single Christian's life. Uh, in, in light of that, um, you know, it's one of the things, well, not one of the things, it's the thing that we focus on at Breakthrough. We don't focus on um, people's problems or addictions or failures. We, we focus on Jesus. Our little book that we go through is just, Michael and I were joking about this the other day, it's just a book of scripture that just points us to him. And the more you point to him, the more you look at him. And I've had guys in the jail say, well, what's that mean to just look at Jesus? Should I draw a picture of him and just stare at him and just look at him? And I, you know, I was like, I so Christianized out, I never even thought of that, you know. And I'm a former inmate, so that's, that's me too, you know. And No, don't draw a picture of him and don't stare at him. You're, you're thinking about who he is, what the Bible says about him, what he, who he is, what he's done, what's he doing, what's he going to do. And when you do that right, like when Greg's talking about grace, like if I try to do good, every time I try to do good, I add all this weight and all this pressure to myself, and it ends up with no peace and no joy and a work of the flesh. 
but does not end well. When I finally come to the point of realizing who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what's he going to do, which I tell myself these questions, exactly those questions. Who is he? What's he done? What's he doing? What's he going to do? It puts me back. It brings me back to him. It's him. It's him. It's him. I'm never going to be. I'm never going to measure up. It's never going to work out in my own strength. It's his grace. It's his grace. And it's his grace. Just because you mentioned breakthrough, for anyone who doesn't know, what is breakthrough and when do they meet and stuff? Uh, it's a group we meet on Tuesday nights at 6 out at the uh, Mission Christian Fellowship in Warrington. Um, it's, a, it's a group where if you've got problems, you're struggling, whatever, whatever it is that you have going on, there's not even doesn't even need a label. It's a place where you can come and you can be prayed for, you can fellowship, you can worship Jesus, you can go through the word with us, and you can hear testimonies of people's lives who've been transformed by Jesus Christ who have got things that have gone on in their life that seemed impossible to ever make it through, and yet God brings a breakthrough. He's done it for me. He's done it for us in this room. He's done it for people in our group. Um, it's a small group, so it's never some big overwhelming thing. And, you know, maybe at church you figure you can't really have time to, you know, get to know someone enough to do that, or you're not involved in a small group yet, which you should be involved in a small group. But Breakthrough is a place where you can just come lay it all out, no judgment. You can just pour it all out without fear and know that what is said is going to be kept there, and it's going to be a place where Jesus Christ can meet you and set you free from whatever it is or those things are or whatever it may be. Uh, he's able to do it, and he's the answer. It's the Sunday school answer. What's the answer? No one's paying attention. Jesus! It's the answer every time. <laughs> I'm up. Okay. I'm uh, number three, which is the uh, being empowered by the Spirit. It's grace, Greg. It's called grace. All right. Uh, so being empowered by the Spirit uh, is a distinctive of Calvary Chapel. It's, you know, uh, so there's this is how we look at that, what that means. There's a, an empowering experience with the Holy Spirit that is a separate and distinct from conversion. Some fancy little Greek words here. In the Greek, it's uh, described in three prepositions. The word para just means with. The word n-e-n means in-i-n. And the word epi-e-p-i just means upon or over. Uh, so uh, para, uh, para, which is with, the Holy Spirit is with you before conversion as he convicts you of sin and helps you to realize your sinful state. And then points you, like we were just saying, to Jesus as the remedy, uh, resulting in, you know, pointing you towards salvation, the remedy. The in, this is when you invite Jesus into your heart to take up residence. In this moment, you are born again. At this point, we are under his control, but voluntarily. This enables us to be conformed into the image of Christ. So before conversion, he's with us, he's drawing us, he's wooing us, um, convicting us of our sin, of judgment and righteousness, the scripture says. And then uh, in us is when we've asked him in some way, shape, or form to come in and take residence in our heart, to live in our heart, to set us free, to forgive us of our sins, however way you want to say that. Um, and then some scriptures, uh, 
John 14, 16 through 17 says, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you, again, para, and will be in you, en. And then the, the epi, the, the coming upon or over you, this, is, this coming upon enables or empowers us to be used by God um, like a river or a torrent of living water flowing through us. It has a purpose. It's not a puddle. It's not a pond. It's not a sea like the Dead Sea with no outlet, but a river to flow into the lives of others for the gospel of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And there's a promise that uh, comes with this. Uh, Acts 1.8 says, when you, rec- you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. He says, you will receive this power when it comes upon you. You will be my witnesses. So we're, what we're seeing here is there's a, a coming alongside before conversion, a coming into, resulting in conversion or salvation, and then a coming upon to give you power. It's the, they use the word dunamis, or it means dynamite to us, to empower you to do what God's called you to do, to live the Christian life. Um, and it's not, uh, that part there is a continually coming upon. Uh, Ephesians will say, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I can honestly say I had that wrong a long, long time ago. I really had that wrong. I thought it was a one-time thing. And again, that comes from jail. (laughs) Uh, Again, yeah, you want to read the whole thing, the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help me God. Uh, Some other uh, picture of this. (laughs) Uh, Peter and John in Acts 8, 14 through 17 says, uh, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent from them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. This isn't all the ways this happens. This is just some uh, pictures of it, so you can see it from the scriptures. Here's a picture of Paul after he's uh, been knocked off his high horse, as it were, on the road to Damascus. Uh, after that happens, uh, God tells Ananias to go and do this thing. So here's uh, Acts 19, 17 through 20. Ananias departed and entered the house. After laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. For several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to what? Proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. You can't say that unless by the Spirit of Christ. And whether you call it being filled with the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, um, being overflowing by the Holy Spirit. Um, the idea is it's not something you keep to yourself. It's something to be used for God's glory. And that empowerment enables us to do the things that are impossible to do with man, but possible to do with God. It's on. <laughs> I think this comes back to 
uh, Dylan's first question, how do I give it to God, whatever that it may be, um, <clears throat> it's in the spirit. Yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot of bad press about the Holy Spirit. You know, there's been a lot of wrong done in the name of the Holy Spirit um, or just a lack of understanding of the Holy Spirit and, and people just wanting this, this experience, this experiential relationship with, with the Holy Spirit. But really, the whole point of everything that Stephen is talking about here is us surrendering to the Lord and saying, I want everything that you have to give me. I am, I am a dead man. And, uh, and uh, I want your life living in me. And so as we're doing that, it's, you know, those things that we're, you know, not surrendering that we need to give to God, those are consumed in, in that filling experience and in that empowering for life, empowering for uh, ministry, as it were. Did you know we're all called to the ministry? everywhere we go, in our families, in our workplaces, in our friends' circles and all that. We can't do that on our own. We need the Holy Spirit of God indwelling in us and empowering us to do that. We need that empowerment just to walk in righteousness, you know. Anyway. And uh, just in light of the one of the things I didn't read was... Uh, there's some instances where it happens all at the same time. He's with you, he's in you, and you get baptized <laughs> in the Holy Spirit. So it's not just, uh, a, you know, there's a coming along, there's a or with, there's an in, and then there's an overflow. And sometimes they're at different times, and sometimes they're at the same time. But that last one, like, like we're saying, that the overflow, the, the coming upon, every, I mean, I ask the Lord, to, the Holy Spirit, to come upon me every day. Because I'm a wretch. I know if I, I, I just know me, and, and I mess things up greatly. No, I need to. <laughs> you know, and uh, so um, to go back to, I didn't say this before, but when you were asking that it, one of the things, 18 years of not being able to have a child, surrendering that to the Lord every day and every day and every day, and then having this question, why us, Lord? Why, 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 why? I, you know, as if God owes me an answer. <laughs> he does not. And so, and this isn't biblical. This was a text message my wife received from a, a dear sister in Texas, and it said this. I don't expect you to understand, but I do require you to trust. Meaning, God doesn't expect you to understand what he's doing or not doing the way you want it, but he does require you, he does require me to trust him. Period. And I'll tell you what, that text message was a lifesaver for me and for my bride. It really blessed us tremendously. And I know, like when I explain, you know, to certain guys, when you surrender, to me, what I, when I'm reminded of surrender, it's, you know, in the old days, I only put my hands up if there was a gun on my back, and usually there was blue and red lights flashing at the same time. So um, when we... When we surrender to God, there's no gun to our back. It's voluntary. It's 100% submission and humility before the Lord saying, like Michael read, not my will, but your will be done. And there's peace there. There's joy. And that burden 
I think you said it, that ginormous weight, even though the situation didn't change, the weight is lifted and you're able to get up and move forward. I was just going to connect, I, I think, three dots real quick. So we're, you know, if you think about our first topics here, the priority of the word, grace, and the, the emphasis on the, the ministry of the Spirit in these, these three ways that Stephen read about, that's, that's really, they're really connected. We wouldn't come up with the doctrine of grace on our own. Like there's no, there's no relationship in the world hardly that operates by grace. It's, you know, every, everything you do, your, your job don't pay you unless you show up for work and do your job, right? And a lot of relationships are, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. And so our human conception is, is workspace. So the Bible, the word of God is what tells us about the idea that God would relate to us graciously. And then when we get to that spot of grace, it's saying, Lord, I surrender to you. I'm a mess. I receive that. And now I want to live that new life. Well, we put an emphasis on that transformation coming again, not by works. Like Greg said, it's even sanctification comes about by grace and it's because of the power of the spirit in my life. So I hear it from God's word. I choose to believe that it's true. Like this is by grace, Lord. Now you're asking me to do this, to forgive my enemy. There's no way I can do that on my own. I surrender. You're gonna have to do that through me. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. He comes upon you and makes you able to love your enemy, lay down your life for your spouse, be patient with your children, you know, be kind to your boss or your employees or all that. So so in our relationships with one another, we really trust that it's the Holy Spirit that's gonna ultimately do that work, not us changing ourselves. Just a couple verses from Galatians 5. He says, so I say to you, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives and then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves or walk in the Spirit and you won't gratify the flesh. A lot of times we try to fix ourselves you know, and it's like, okay, Lord, I'll walk with you as soon as I get my life together. And it's just the opposite. You start walking with him, letting him control your life and he'll clean up that mess. So... I think that whole thing goes with grace. Yeah. I'm just thinking of one more thing r related to the Holy Spirit. A, a lot of times uh, we want the miraculous from the Holy Spirit in our own lives. And it, it's really selfish thinking. You know, it's, you know, it's sometimes like, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can, you know, change this and, or so I can experience, I, I mentioned it before, experience miraculous in my life but the, <clears throat> when we see miraculous workings of the holy spirit you know in in the disciples and other christians throughout the new testament it's nearly always in the context of helping someone else ministering to someone else they were speaking in tongues on the day of pentecost and people from all around the known world were hearing the gospel in their own language. Um, you see uh, Peter and John going to the temple and they heal the lame man because they were full of the Holy Spirit. Yes, they were blessed in return, but it was, it was just that surrender and complete availability to the Lord and, and desiring everything that the Lord had for them as dead men, you know, not so they could accomplish their own will, but so that they could be available and used by God in very powerful ways. So I think that's really important that we understand this is not so we can receive more blessing from God and we can just hoard it all to ourselves. It's so, it's part of that life of gratitude. It's like, Lord, I'm available. I'm a willing vessel. Give me everything that you have and use me however you see fit. And that's where... Uh, you know, you see people just like used in these amazing, incredible ways. So. 
<clears throat> Pastor Chris did a, a great uh, illustration with that, with that water pitcher. I don't know if you guys saw that or remember that teaching a couple months ago or so, but you grabbed what, a shot glass or something and, and just poured the pitcher over, I mean, just buckets over it. Like, it wasn't about just filling the glass. It was overflowing the glass, just like you're saying, to overflow you know, into, into others. So, yeah, that's the whole point of it, to, to build the church. I don't know. These guys pretty much uh, took all my material, so I'm not really sure what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> Actually, I was talking with Greg earlier and about the, you know, Calvary Chapel distinctives, and I was just kind of reminded of thumbing through the book is like it's painfully simple. It's just, it's just, there's like just a few key verses that are almost a common thread through every single chapter in the book, and it's like, and there's so much overlap in all the things we're talking about here, and it's it's actually quite quite simple. So. But I will try to uh, add a little bit. So the, the question I think we started with was, why do we do things at church the way we do? And uh, this section, uh, let's see, that was it? Uh, God's model for the church. So why, <clears throat> what's the model? Basically, the church is an organization boiled down to its simplest form. Although it's unlike any organization in the universe because it was instituted by Jesus Christ and Jesus said that he would build his church. So, but we know uh, every good organization needs, what, is it, what does every good organization need? A leader? People? What else? A cause, a purpose, or you might say, what, a mission, a mission statement? So uh, just a simple uh, mission statement for the church, as as uh, at the end of uh, the book of Matthew, where Jesus says, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you." So, our mission as the Church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news um, of the gospel to make disciples. And so most um, churches and denominations and, you know, uh, the church at large acknowledges this mission, but the models from which people carried out very greatly. Um, so the model for uh, Calvary Chapel churches is basically the book of Acts. Um, this is when the church first began, when the church was first born, um, and as Stephen mentioned earlier, when the Holy Spirit was given, and it uh, began, actually, there's one more verse I'd like to share in Luke 24, um, which I think is interesting. It's sort of a parallel account of right before Jesus ascends, and he says uh, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And verse 49, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the mission is go out and make disciples, but don't go anywhere until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is how the book of Acts begins, was um, the Holy Spirit coming in, the, in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the uh, coming upon of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit is, we believe, is absolutely essential for carrying out the mission of the church, and that is to make disciples. And so we, like Greg and, and Stephen, the other guys shared, we put a, a great deal of emphasis on being led by the Holy Spirit, seeking uh, the Holy Spirit's will for the church. And uh, after this, we see in uh, Acts chapter 2 where Peter stands up in verse 14. It says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And so he preaches this sermon to the crowd that's there in Jerusalem. When just days before, he was so scared to even speak to a servant girl about Jesus. And now he's standing up in front of thousands of people, full of the Holy Spirit, and he's teaching a sermon. And he's uh, quoting the scriptures here. Uh, the prophet Joel, he goes on to quote uh, where it says uh, David in the Psalms. He quotes some of the Psalms and then he expounds on the scriptures. And he goes through, and then in verse 37, we see the response of the people. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is, this is leading up to something. <laughs> in Acts 2.42, this is the... Um, I guess you could say the one verse you could point at, we say this is the model for our church. In fact, this is the, you know, the, or what do you call it, the signature verse or whatever for our church. It's Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. So um, basically what we see here is the Holy Spirit being given, Peter preaching the word of God, people getting saved, and then this is the church being born. There's 3,000 people that get saved on that day. And it says these about 3,000 people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we have, at, you know, at this time they had the Old Testament scriptures. We have the apostles' teaching, the New Testament scriptures. And that's what we, again, put a great deal of emphasis on the Word of God. We teach and preach the Word of God line by line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, second is the fellowship, basically getting together, like Michael pointed out in Nehemiah chapter 8. The first thing was all the people gathered. They just got together. They were, they were together as, I think, as one man, as one of the things says. They all had one mind to come together. The breaking of bread. This is uh, probably in reference to communion, remembering um, uh remembering our Lord Jesus with the, his body that was broken and the blood that was spilled out for us, but also just in a simple meal together. There was a, uh, a very special thing to um, share in a meal, especially in the Middle Eastern culture. But even today, you know, you want to get to know somebody, you invite them over to your house for lunch or dinner or whatever. You share a meal together. You break bread. Yeah. <laughs> or ice cream, I suppose. <clears throat> And um, also to, it says, the prayers. So they were uh, people who got together in fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to breaking bread, and also to prayer. And um, basically, these four things 
is what we look at as the main ingredients of the church, is what we do that's the model for how we do church. How I've, you know, again, in talking to people, some of you have probably heard the same thing, you know, you go, oh, you should, hey, do you go to church anywhere? You should come out to church on Sunday. Well, I don't, well, I'm a, you know, I don't believe you have to go to church to be a Christian. Okay, well, I guess that's true, you know, and I was talking to one guy, this was quite a while ago, and and I was kind of trying to witness to him. He goes, well, yeah, I'm, you know, we're, we're, we're Christians, and, you know, and I go, oh, okay. And he goes, well, well, we don't go to church and stuff, but, you know, on Sundays, we have our families over, we have a meal, and we just rest, and we just have a, have a, you know, just a nice day, and, you know, we pray and stuff sometimes, you know, and, <laughs> And so it's like kind of like this, like I don't sort of this idea of I don't really need to go to church, even though I'm a Christian, because I do this other thing. And my response to him was, well, that's great. I mean, that's awesome. You have your family over. And actually, the book of Acts says that the model for the early church was they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. So if you want to have your family over on Sunday and open up the Bible and pray together, and break bread together, then you're doing church together. Or if you want to have anybody over at your house, like anywhere, I believe these four things are happening and present, you're doing church. And, you know, obviously it could be at a home church, which we have our home fellowships and things. But um, so I think these are just the kind of, these are the four main things that we um, basically model our church services uh, after and then of course you know the other thing I've heard is well my church is in the woods you know I go to get solitude and you know we I don't do church and organized church and this and that and that's great to go out and be alone and have times of solitude and reflection and you know prayer and things like that but you're really not that that's not church that isn't church church is where these four things are taking place and happening whether that's here at another church in a small group anywhere really the church is wherever these things are happening in in the name of Jesus Christ and uh, what's what's really cool about this is if we drop down to chapter 2 and verse 47 it says and the lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved and so what happened was the holy spirit was given they taught the word of God, um, preached Jesus as the Christ. People got saved, and then they just kept doing Acts 2.42. And what does it say? The apostles added to their number. No. The people invited people and added to No. It says the Lord added to their number day by day. When we simply do these things, the Lord will add to the number of the church day by day, those who are being saved. And it's a, as I said before, painfully simple model in this day and age when, you know, we, we think of, uh, well, how, we got to get people saved. We, we got to do this and that. We got to have this program and da, 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 da. And believe me, I, I believe there is a time and a place for programs and different things. But when it boils right down to it, in uh, John chapter 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Did you hear that? No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. There's some kind of supernatural uh, pull from the Holy Spirit, from God the Father, 
for someone to believe in Jesus. So no matter how much we program, no matter how much we think and scheme and try to get people in the door and keep people in the seats and whatever, none of that really amounts to anything unless the Father draws them. And it, come, it brings us right back to the Holy Spirit. Everything we do has to be led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so you say, really? That, that, that's your model. That's your plan to get people saved. Just hang out read the Bible, and pray, and eat food. Yeah, that's pretty much our plan, and we're, we trust that God will add to the number of the church day by day those who are being saved. I don't really know what else to, to add. I mean, that's it's just, it is pretty simple. Let me see here. Also, as we, as you kind of continue on in the book of Acts, it tells the story of the early church, and then how they how uh, Paul and the other apostles were going out and, like, starting other churches, and people were getting saved all over the place. There's several verses here um, in Acts. Let me see. Well, the point is this. They were continually led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. They didn't really have a plan. At least none was recorded. They didn't have like a five-year plan, 10-year plan. In fact, they were expecting that Jesus was going to return any day. And so uh, Acts 13, verse 2 through 3, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and prayer, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Were they planning on sending them off? We don't know. It doesn't say. Where did they send them to? Well, I think it does say where they sent them to. But they're just like praying, worshiping, and the Holy Spirit said, Send these guys off. And they're like, are you sure? Like, do you, th- are you, do you think we're really supposed to send them off? Like, yeah, all right, get out of here, go. Like, they were just led by the Holy Spirit. And um, it's kind of crazy. Acts 15, 28, it says, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and good to us. This is a phrase they used. They're trying to make decisions. You know, they kind of ha- had a, like a group of elders, uh, leadership of the early church, and they would talk about things and go, yeah, I think the Holy Spirit is saying this is what we should do. And that's how, that was their model for leading the church. Um, again, Acts 16, 7. This is where uh, Paul was on one of his missionary journeys. He's trying to go to this, I forget where it was, where he was trying to get over to somewhere. And it says, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. So he's like, I want to go up here and share the gospel. and But he's like, oh, the spirit didn't allow me to go. And then I tried to go here. And the spirit forbade us to go there. And then I tried to go over here and I had this vision. And there was this guy, I was like, come over here and preach the gospel. So he's like, Then I concluded the Spirit wanted us to go over here. There was something like that. I think I butchered it, but so he was just—he was just like all of us. He didn't really know what he was doing, but he was trying to be and listening for and following the Holy Spirit. And that is something that is a uh, how do I say this? One of the foundations of the models for how our leadership tries to work here at the church. Um, but it's not something you can really model, right? I mean, to like, oh yeah, we want to be led by the Holy Spirit. Well, let's plan for that. Well, I mean, it's not that you can't really plan, you know, we can just, all we can do is just be carried along by the Holy Spirit and trust, and then trust that the Lord's going to do what he says he's going to do in the Bible. So that's kind of, I think, any, have any, that's our, that's our model. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah, we got lots of time. <laughs> so, uh, oh, did you have? 
whenever you're done. I, my, I, my, I just, I just my, had, a, I just had a short story. Sorry. Yeah, tell your story. Um, so when, it, when Allie and I first started coming to church here, we started. Well, let me back up a little bit. We were attending a different church uh, in the area. I don't know for about six months or so. I got baptized there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so every Sunday in the bulletin, they would have the church budget like posted in the bulletin. And, uh, you know, I think there was a fundraiser or something going on. And, and then there was different things that the church would, like, vote on, you know. It was a great little church. I mean, we, we liked it. The people were, were great. I mean, they taught the word of God. Um, but there was things like that, you know. And it's kind of like, okay, here's an org- organization. They have a budget. They have needs. There's some things. Oh, we got to do whatever. Let's vote on it and figure it. I was used to that kind of thing. This is, like, how the world operates, right? And um, when we decided to start attending here, uh, I'm kind of a nuts and bolts guy. I'm kind of a practical guy. And so I understand that kind of thing. When we started attending here, Ellie and I started serving in the kitchen. And we were back there for a few months. And I started kind of get to know some people and the leaders back there. And I was like, so how, how does, who pays for all this? Like, how, do, how does this, all this meal and stuff, like, this is like a lot. You know, it was a big deal. We used to have like this huge meal every Thursday night. And the guy's like, oh, man, the Lord just provides, dude. Oh, the Lord just so gracious. Oh, it's the Lord, you know, in the spirit. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not going to get a straight answer from this guy. <laughs> so then, I don't know, it was several years later, um, I got chose to be a deacon. And then we had, like, leadership meetings pretty regularly. And so I'm like, okay well, this will be kind of interesting. Like, I'll, I'll kind of get to learn, like, how things, like, really work, you know, like, how, it act, how things actually get done around here. And the first leadership meeting I went to, we all just, like, sat around. The pastor was like, oh, yeah, let's just, let's just worship. Yeah. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> and then he's like, yeah, let's pray. I think we need, we need to pray about this. And, and then we talked, talked shop for maybe, like, a minute or two, and it was like nothing. It was like, like, yeah, well, is there anything you guys want to talk about? Or like, no, I don't know. You're like, you're the pastor. Like, <laughs> you know, and that was literally, that's like our leadership meetings. It's like worship, pray, and try to listen to the spirit. And I was just like, this is so weird. But literally, I mean, and trust me, we're not perfect at this. Um, this is what we try to do. We miss the mark sometimes. You know, probably probably miss the boat sometimes, but I mean, like, this is what the early church did. They didn't have, like, all these schemes and plans and studies and, you know, whatever. At least they're not recorded. And, you know, we go with what's recorded in the scriptures, man. So, um, and then later, and then later on, when I became an elder, I mean, I was pretty familiar with things went by then. I kind of thought, well, you know, maybe there is a little more to this leadership stuff. It was like, no, just more spirit. It was like, we just really need to be led by the spirit. Like, that's pretty much it. Acts 2.42 and try to listen for the spirit and be led by the spirit. Like, that is the model that we see. This What I see just as a simple reading of the scriptures, and that is literally how we try to model uh, the church here at Coastline. I had to make sure it was still on. Um, yet so much of that just leads right into what my next topic was. Uh, which is church government. and But before I jump into that, there was it, the next thing that happened was the church kept growing and growing and growing. There, there were different things that 
caused them to scatter. Some of it was persecution. Some of it was like, like Eric was saying, hey, it seems good to us and we feel the Holy Spirit is leading. We're going to send these guys out. And so then this was being replicated all over the place. People were going out and, and being about the word and fellowship and prayer, breaking of bread, all of that. And, and you saw churches scattered all over the place and just sprouting up. Um, and that's, that's how Christianity flooded the, the whole world. And we see churches all over the globe. And there are so many different models for how those churches are run. Um, so the next subject is, is church government. And um, I've, I've been in church my entire life. My dad was a pastor. I got saved when I was six. And so been, you know, been a Christian for, what, 20 years now? Yeah. <laughs> 21? Oh, okay. Math was not my strong suit. Uh, anyway... I've seen a lot of different models for church government, and more often than not, big surprise, churches tend to trend towards human models for leadership and government. It's because it, the church is filled with humans. Um, you know, the IRS looks as, at churches as a nonprofit entity, a, uh, a corporation, if you will. So how do you run a corporation? Well, you, you, you have a, a board, you have a president of the board, and, uh, and you have votes, and, uh, and you look at budgets, and uh, you, you have budget meetings, and you cut things, and you add things when you, you, when you can, and you want to show a, a bottom line that's healthy and all of that. Um, that model is, is rampant throughout Christianity. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches at all. I, I really like what you said, Eric, you know, going, <laughs> showing up at a leadership meeting. <laughs> oh, we just worshiped and, and prayed and talked about three practical things for two minutes. Um, I really think that's the way God intended it. The first thing we have to realize is this is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the body of Christ. We have these little congregations, but we're part of Jesus. Apart from him, the church doesn't even exist. So that is the model in Calvary chapels. This is Jesus's church. Now, you have a pastor. Does the pastor run things? Well, in some churches, he does. The pastor says, well, you know, I'm the pastor. This is the way it's going to be. If you don't like it, you're off the boat. Other churches are run by a board. It's like, you know, in fact, there's an example in this book where Chuck Smith, before he went to Costa Mesa, he, he was... Uh, working at a church as a pastor, and, and there was a group of guys that had raised a whole bunch of money to see the gospel spread. And, and they wanted him to go preach in, in these other places, and he goes, and, and one day he just really felt led by the Spirit to just, you know, like circle up the chairs and, and just, just have this real intimate time of worship and prayer. And, um, and he was like, it was awesome, 
felt like the spirit really moved and people were ministered to and and then the board got a hold of him these guys that had raised all this money they were the board and they basically told him don't ever do that again and that is the problem with having a board per se um and uh, oftentimes people that have a financial interest in the church end up being on the board and they want to control the purse strings of the poor, uh, of the church. They want to make sure that the pastor is doing his job. So that that breaks down really quickly. But just just the same, a pastor having the final say in the way everything is is done is is fraught with problems too. Um, so so the model here is you trying trying to steal my thunder. No. Actually, Greg, could you just tell us a little bit about how it works here? Like, how, do, how does it work? Does Chris have all the authority or, or what? Like I was saying. No. <laughs> no, so, so how it works here is Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We have a pastor, and, and, and a pastor has a personality. So, you know, Chris, as, the, as the, the lead pastor here at this church, certainly brings a flavor to this church and, and, and a personality, because he's the one people see talking all the time. But uh, we have a group of elders, or overseers, as it were, that we get together weekly as, as much as we're able to, you know, discuss some things going on in the church, pray together. But we are all, Chris included, submitted to the Lord. So many times... In our prayer, it, it's like, Jesus, this is your church, and we don't know what to do. <laughs> you know, if you look at, at, at 1 Timothy chapter 3, it gives the, the, the qualifications for a deacon. And the first one is that you have to have led, you know, three different Fortune 500 companies. No, that's not in there. Got to be above reproach husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. You know, all these things. And I'm, I'm happy to say, yeah, this is for, that's for elders. I'm happy to say that, that uh, I'm surrounded by a bunch of guys that, that, that meet these qualifications but the great thing is, doesn't say you have to know how to manage an organization. It doesn't say you have to know how to fundraise. Doesn't say that you have to know how to build a budget, uh, and uh, you know, all of these different things. You don't have to have an HR degree. Um, we, we, Chris included, try to surrender everything that we do to the Lord. And, and ask him for his direction, and then we try to move together in unity, which I think is another rare concept. A lot of, a, a lot of uh, churches will make the decision by a vote. The majority wins, and that's the direction you go. I'm not saying it's a horrible model, but what we try to do is wait on the Lord, and if somebody, I've been that guy, I think more times than I'd like to admit, where I'm like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And so we wait, and we don't move forward 
Um, other times, it, it, you know, it's like, hey, I've got no checks on that. You know, I really, you know, I'm okay if 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 we all feel like that's the the direction the Lord is leading, and and I think it's a really good model. And and then, as elders, we're supporting Chris as as the the lead church, the guy that got I lead pastor, the guy that uh, God has chosen to you know kind of be the main mouthpiece and 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 we're praying for him and we're supporting him and being that network you know where he's you know struggling with you know the, the example of 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 uh Moses praying um and his he was lifting his hands and praying to God and the armies were doing well but his hands were getting weary and the elders came alongside and lifted up his arms and and helped him. So we try to do that for Chris. Um, and elders in the book of Acts are in Acts chapter six says that the elders were supposed to be about prayer and the word. And in Acts chapter six, they were getting distracted by a lot of practical needs within the church. So at that point, we see the first instance of deacons being appointed where their primary ministry was to help take care of those practical needs. One of the things they were looking for in Acts 6 was men who were full of the Holy Spirit. And so anyway, that's what we have here. We have guys, deacons here that are you know, taking care of a lot of the practical needs. It's, it's not a... It's not a um, you know, it's not like elders are superior and deacons inferior or vice versa. It's just that's that's the particular ministry God has called them into. These guys are full of the Holy Spirit and, and just happy to serve as, as their way of serving the Lord. So there's these roles in the church. But I'm kind of rambling, but that's that's the general model. It's not like some super secret sauce, but it's... It's recognizing that Jesus is the head of the church. We are not. We are just his servants, and, and we want to submit everything that we're doing to him. Well, that's all the time we have tonight. So, yeah, I think, anybody have any other questions before we wrap up there? Or, you do? Yeah. What is your first name? Let me sum up and make sure I'm answering your question. That's such a great question. So, you're saying, like, hey, I've, my, my family, we're following the Lord. We're trying to sort out how to do that ourselves. And our extended family, so our parents, everybody else, is still doesn't know the Lord. And they're doing exactly what we would do if we didn't know the Lord, right? They're into worldly stuff, some stuff where, like, man, there's substances involved. There's media involved. I don't want to be part of that, but I love this family. I want to witness to them. I also want to protect my children. Am I hitting on all the bases? That's awesome. I have zero children, so these guys are going to answer that. <laughs> what do you think? This is a great question, kind of being in the world but not of it. I mean, anybody? Okay. Great question. Thank you for asking that. I'm super curious to hear what they're going to say. <laughs> My girls are all grown now, and I think they're traumatized from the stuff we wouldn't let them do. <laughs> uh, you know, they're, they're, they're all kinds of kids' movies that now I think back and like, why didn't we let them watch that? But, you know, you know there's just, we were very careful not controlling, but careful about what we let our kids uh, take in so they could just spend time being kids and not be forced to grow up too quickly. 
That is not easy to do. And I feel like there were a lot of times my wife and I had to say no to our girls when when they were invited to go over to somebody's house because we knew that there were no checks on certain things and uh, and they'd probably end up watching things that we really didn't want them to watch and that it, it just wasn't right for for our kids and the way we wanted to raise our kids. I think it's something that you have to just prayerfully consider and 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 just say God, how in the world do I navigate this? He's a lot smarter than we are. I mean, I, I'm just all I can do is tell you what we did, but um, there was a lot of that. It's like, how how do we navigate this? Oh yeah, yeah. I I would say this. Um, it's great that you want to minister to your extended family, and you should. Um, you know, in, you know, honor your mother and sorry, honor your mother and father. You know, however, however that might look for you, but um, I would just say that your primary ministry now is to the Lord. Your other primary ministry is your husband and your children. And so, to uh, I guess put this ministry of oh, we got to minister to our family, therefore we're going to expose our family and my kids to these things that are going to be harmful to them. I would say that's not probably what I would consider a wise thing to do. I don't think it would be like a sin or anything, but uh, I would I would consider my primary ministry to the children that God has given me and consider that. So uh, we have some family that are like into drinking and stuff, and uh, I've had to have some pretty awkward conversations with people I love dearly who I'm close with and just say, um, look, you know, if my son's going to be over here with you, I don't want you drinking. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm, I won't have it. And it's not easy, um, but just to set bound, set a boundary or set some boundaries, you know, you might say, hey, look, we, we love you. We want to come over and hang out with you, but we cannot, we, we can't watch these things and we can't engage in this kind of lifestyle. So if you want us to keep coming and hanging out, then maybe we can, you know, have some kind of arrangement where it's like a sober night or whatever. I don't know. But I think just, yeah, children be <clears throat> a primary concern in my mind. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes it, it uh, something as practical as saying, well, why don't you come over to our house instead? Yes. And, um, you know, in your, your house, your rules, you know, as much as you have control over anybody. But uh, you kind of, you know, set the tone there in your own house. You have a little more control over things and and use that as a building block and 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 kind of an expectation for um how things might be if your kids were going over there i, I don't know it's just one practical idea but pray <laughs> definitely pray yeah i actually asked greg's advice quite a bit because he's had these girls and i have a four-year-old girl so i'm a first-time parent too and i'm 52 so there you go um and I've learned a lot from Greg. And I've also watched uh, Eric and Allie raise Everett. And so I've learned a lot from them as well. And, uh, and Chris and Sarah and their boys. I also want to, something Greg has taught me is that to take each case on a case-by-case basis and pray about it. Because the Lord could have a different plan for each one. <laughs> and um, at the same time, never sacrificing your children on the altar. 
and um, we protect our girl the best we can. And when I've asked Greg, how do I protect her in this situation? He's like, you can't protect her in every situation. <laughs> and so we, we do our best, and it's, a, it's, it's what works for you and your family, how you're going to do it, when you're going to do it, if you're going to do it. And that great idea of having your house open just eliminates all those problems, like, at one time. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing I was thinking about when I said that was that it might be uncomfortable, too. So, uh, but, but still, it's a, it might be a good stepping stone. <laughs> Father, we do ask for your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you please lead us and guide us in, um, Lord, our, our lives, just everything in our lives, Lord, in the church, in our jobs, in our uh, being parents, being spouses, uh, witnessing to people, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. We are desperate for the Spirit. And, uh, Lord, we pray that you would just pour out your Spirit on us tonight, on all those who are listening tonight. Lord, I pray that um, every situation and every doubt and fear and question mark in everyone's head, um, Lord, we know um, may not have been answered tonight, but, Lord, I just pray for uh, peace that surpasses understanding. Lord, I uh, think of that scripture where it says, uh, you open their minds to understand the scriptures. And so, Lord, for us sitting up here on the stage, Lord, I, I pray that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures. Lord, for everyone listening online, that you would open up their minds to understand the scriptures. And uh, just as we uh, try to walk out our faith, and for anyone who, um, who doesn't know you, tonight, Lord, who hasn't put their faith in you, who hasn't trusted in you for salvation, that you would draw them to yourself, Lord, and that they would come to know you and place their faith in you, Lord. And so we just thank you that you have all the answers concerning this life. We thank you um, that you've given us your word, Lord, and uh, that it's a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. And we don't want to lean on our own understanding, but just acknowledge you in all of our ways trust in you with all of our heart, and know that you will make our path straight. So thank you for tonight. Uh, we pray you bless each one as we go our way, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.